0: Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, or perhaps broadcast on your local community, Airwaves, which are much appreciated, or on podcast websites, wherever people listen to those. I don't know where they listen to those, but they do listen to them. And I'm David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Hostetter.
1: And I'm Lauren Latour. Thanks so much for joining us this week.
0: Sweet. And... We're going to get to an interview that Amir Jandali has conducted with...
2: Cassia Patel.
0: Cassia Patel from Oceanic Global Foundation, which is an oceans advocate organization doing work worldwide. Exactly. But first, Stefan wanted to highlight something that he read about individual versus collective action. Yes. To start us off.
2: Yes. Uh, so the, for opening 10 minutes, we're going to talk about the cult of personal responsibility, most specifically due to an incredible essay that uh, came from Amy Westervelt, who is a highly recommended, one of maybe the best climate reporters. I'm going to say, not maybe, not maybe, one of the best climate reporters uh, in at least North America. And she wrote an article, or uh, more, she wrote a personal essay called The Cult of, Respon- of Personal Responsibility is Killing Us. And It's a gut wrenching piece, largely because, as a trigger warning to the short clip I will read in a second, discusses the suicide of her father that happened just before COVID. But the point she sort of brings out is really about the way we, as well, the way that she sees as American, but I see it very similarly here in Canada of how we expect ourselves to solve societal problems. So I'm gonna read one paragraph and then throw it to you for Lauren for Thoughts and then we'll have a, a quick conversation. So here's the uh, one of the paragraphs. When that was over, I gazed mindlessly at Twitter, a thing I somehow found soothing in grief and saw various people arguing about flying and climate change. It reminded me of the people who'd wondered why I couldn't stop my depressed dad from committing suicide. Or the people who ask questions like, "Can't you just hire a nanny?" When I talk about what is shaping up to be a decades-long struggle to figure out consistent childcare, maybe these things sound completely unrela- maybe these things sound completely unrelated: climate change, mental health care, childcare. But to me, they are all layers to the same uniquely American issue: the idea that each of us can and should solve systemic problems on our own.
1: I, I haven't read this piece yet by Amy Westervelt. I'm looking forward to, um, definitely, especially just based on that paragraph, but, but yes, this whole sort of cult of, of individual responsibility that you sort of, how you phrased it off the top is something that obviously we, we've discussed frequently on the show. Um, and it comes up for me a relatively frequent amount, just like in my life and profession in general. Um, and it, and it, it threw me back to, um, this presentation I was giving to a group of, geez, I think they were like eighth graders, I think sixth or eighth graders a couple months ago now. And, um, I think where, where the sort of the difficulty for me comes up around this sort of cult of personal responsibility thing comes up is because people do want to know that their individual actions matter. And people do want to know that they can contribute positively. So like, for instance, when I was talking to this group of eighth graders their teacher at the end of my presentation prompted me they were like great and how can the kids take action and I was like oh my gosh so great like absolutely like get involved the best thing you can do is like get involved in your community and like like yeah obviously you're not voting age yet but like don't be afraid to get in touch with your representatives and like fight to make change within your school and stuff like that and like really emphasizing those like systemic ways that we can make change and, and those ways that we can sort of contribute to those big transformations societally. And then the teacher again asked me, okay, but what's something small that the kids can do right now? And I was like, you're sort of backed into this corner and these kids are waiting for you to say something. So then I was like, I like riding my bike. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like I sort of, I gave in because like the teacher was like, should they like eat less meat or something? And I'm like, I'm always really, Ooh, I hit my mic. Sorry. Always really loathe to bring up those sort of personal moral responsibility things, because then it's like that kid's gonna go home and eat a burger and feel like it's a moral failing, and by no means is it their fault. Like I even like I I always try to work that into presentations. It's like we know there are like a hundred companies that are responsible for something. Bananas like seventy percent of emissions, and like like we know this. We talk about these things over and over. The fact that like the carbon footprint idea was developed by BP, by British Petroleum, or I guess now beyond Petroleum in order to like shift the focus off of them and their big oil crony buddies to like you and me and these eighth grader kids who were like terrified for their future and convincing us that like, it's your fault. It's your moral failing if you don't do anything about it. So it, yeah, it's really hard. And yet there I was in that moment, backed into a corner telling kids that ride your bike to school. That's a great thing to do. Like when when I... Yes, riding your bike is a great thing to do for a variety of reasons, health-related, community-related, climate-related, but like, whether or not you ride your bike to school, if you're a child or to work or whatever, like, that's not going to make or break the future. What it is going to do is put a lot of guilt on you as an individual and potentially have a negative side effect on either your, your mental health, your personal relations, your emotions, um, making you feel like the world is on your shoulders when it shouldn't be, because this isn't, uh, although it's, there's something to be said for The fact that like, yes, climate is all of our collective responsibility. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's the fault of people making billions of dollars off of exploitation, off of exploiting people and off of exploiting the planet. So like, yeah, I feel like we can never, we can never not talk about the cult of personal responsibility and how important it is to, to debunk that as a concept. Well, yes, remembering that like riding your bike to work is a positive thing, but not just for
2: climate reasons. It's interesting how these things play into each other, right, like the wanting, you people both want to feel that they can make a change. And also it is, if they truly believe that, an unfair burden to put on them you know, in the same way that, like, you can't expect any individual person to solve the housing crisis. Like, you can't expect individual person to solve the fact, you know, that we don't have accessible mental health supports, you know, and, and then that is, you know, that then creates an issue, then that that you, then you, then you personally start feeling bad about yourself, which then creates these cycles of, of needing more mental health support, which you can no longer, which you can't get adequately, because our society isn't provided adequately, and you get in these loops. And, it is that concept and those lo- that loop of wanting to feel like you can do something, and that being the thing you need for action, right? Like I think it's that fact that you need to feel like you can make a change for you to get up in the morning and try to do something, right? Like it, I I, th- I think it's I had a I had an interesting conversation with a with a journalist reporter today, um, sorry, a, a student reporter today who wanted to ask about climate change stuff, and he was pretty young. And I could sort of sense the kind of impedi- impending doom in his questions, you know? The, the opening question was a sort of like, "Are what are we doing here? You know, kind of like a gut check to be like, how bad is this kind of way? And there's an entire generation of young people who are growing up with that question. You know, like, the kids are not okay. They are now facing the realities that sort of we were told just at the tail end of our sort of millennial upbringing of being like, yeah, this climate change thing, not great. You should probably care about it. And some of us latched onto it and have been thinking about it for the last 10 years. But like, these kids are at grade eight and they're getting a presentation that's like, hey, guess what? You know how hot this summer was or you know how you can't see the sky because there was burning? Well, that's going to keep happening forever because this new report just said that. And so you have to feel like you can take action and get something done, right? If you don't have that, you will just like give up because of course you would and yet the belief that you can do it does then also make it sort of you, that kind of, of then is your responsibility and then doesn't abdicate the responsibility of all those and of the actions that would really get real things done and it's that it's that dangerous loop that is really hard to jump off of
1: yeah it's also like really hard for anyone whether it's a child or an adult to sort of sit with that concept and that knowledge that climate change is caused by people um we contribute to it every day as a result of the way our society is structured and the way in which we use energy and the way those those things are sort of built in but but to also have to accept the fact that like yes you can do something about it but turning off the light isn't isn't it like it's it's a real it's a hard concept to grasp and the only way i can sort of like almost like think about it in terms of like an analogy and that's always a slippery slope is like you can have say a cousin, for instance, who's a police officer and your cousin might be a really nice person and maybe a really good police officer. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight to abolish the police or like, like something like that. You know what I mean? Sometimes it doesn't matter how good you are as an individual person within this wider problematic system, the wider problematic system still needs to be dismantled. Yeah. And like, that's a big, scary, complicated thought to have to sit with and process and think about every day all the time
2: and then to act out right like it's super hard to even imagine and that's the last thing maybe the last thought i'll have an authority for final thoughts is that like the last thing about this also is that it's hard to imagine and to act towards a future that we can't really see like the amount of action and the collective action required and the and what that collective action would lead to is a society that is so foreign to us right now. You know, there's a, it's, al- it's almost at this point a trope, the idea that we can imagine the end of the world faster than we can ad- imagine the end of capitalism. But like the, that reality does mean that it's very hard to think about getting us like if you go out if you go out and you don't get a plastic bag. You go out and you just and you you bring your recycled ba- your your, your, pla- your other your you you go out and you bring your good bag and you get groceries and come back. You can imagine a world without plastic bags because you can see everyone doing that and that makes sense. If you go out and stand on a picket line to support better, you know, living conditions for you know, for, for your unhoused neighbors, for example, it's very hard to then imagine to go home and then be like, well, I did that thing. And if all of us did that thing, well, then we'd live in a world where there was no homelessness, but like, I can't imagine that world exactly. Or I would, and like, I think it's a, it's a problem with our imagination as well that we, that, that like individual actions we can imagine exponentially growing. Everyone rides a bike. If everyone's riding a bike, That'd be a lot less missions. We can understand that, but like the idea that like we're not having fossil fuels burn to make steel and that creates X Y Z is so outside of our scope of understanding that I think we but, miss it.
0: But that's why individual action is important. Like you're, that that argument can also be one for the importance of individual action because the notion that uh, individual action is is not good, therefore that's demoralizing. It's also, to, it's, it's it's demoralizing also to think that this the systemic structure is the only thing that needs changing. And if you uh, imagine that we've solved climate change now, everybody will have to be living differently. And so I think about how angry uh, someone might get who's, who's very used to, to living a certain way and their entire livelihood is based upon a certain way of life. And then all of a sudden it's like, maybe it's taken away by a natural disaster or maybe it's taken away because we've, systemically changed something. And so the ind- and so the individual work of right doing anything personally to think about uh, how we should live differently on this planet is itself like I think half of the problem. like I, I don't think that, uh, that, that 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 it's meaning like it's, it's it's negligible in comparison. I think it's half the problem, individual action because because our lives will be transformed if we do something about this. Or or they'll be transformed against our will, and then we can say, oh, it's, it's God or it's nature, right? Otherwise, there's a human to blame. It's true that there is a structure that we, like, like an industrial state, which has a structure, and if you want power, then you should use that responsibly within that structure, and those systems should answer to those that it subjects or are subjected to it or live within it. However, the individuals in that system are also the ones constructing the system.
1: I I think, I think, yeah, I know. No. And I don't, I don't disagree. I think where my head goes, when you say that, isn't that, um, yeah, sorry. We're not, we're not arguing that individual action is futile and unimportant, but I think the thing is, is that you, if we are engaging in individual action, I think we have to make sure that it is, tied into those systemic changes in a way that's meaningful isn't just sort of in a way that's like oh well if i use a metal straw and you use a metal straw and you use a metal straw that's that's less metal straws in the world and that can grow exponentially and that's good but like i think it has to be like it has to be tied into that comprehensive societal shift to make sure that because i think a lot of the times our individual shifts are still rooted within that larger capitalist structure which is ultimately at fault here so i think it's like individual changes that only kind of serve to make me feel better, but also uphold that capitalist Leviathan ultimately doesn't get us all that much farther along. It might get us a little bit farther, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna bring about that sea change that we need if we're going to, as a species, live out the next 500 years or whatever.
2: I think the example I might make would be that riding a bike, is the children riding a bike to school is not going to, you know, solve climate change. However, a if the kids riding the bike to school get a bike lane installed or begin to actually sort of push for significantly more bike-friendly infrastructure in in their city, that those those changes will, you know, increase more bikes. And then you actually get a ball rolling down a hill in towards the societal structure of what we need is much more bike-friendly and, you know, Carbon neutral uh, or carbon zero, actually, transportation. And so I think like as long as you're taking those personal actions and they enrolling them into these societal changes that will get us, you know, these sort of bigger things that we need. I think that's the way to sort of square that a little bit, rather than yeah, like just we can't get like a 17th tote bag, or even honestly, just reference last week's show about sort of the clothing rental is you know is a these are the things that we have to sort of pay attention to to make sure that we're not just buying back into the same system. And ultimately, the last thing, but just to go back to the sort of cult of personal responsibility, you know, is basically just that like it's still not worth like you shouldn't feel bad about it. <laughs> like, you know, like there's like there, like it's there's also a level of like those of us, especially in active circles can really start to feel like it is our personal responsibility to have this done, which then means makes an action feel, like a personal failing. And I think that's the thing that is sort of being put talked about in the, in the yeah. article.
0: Well, and, piece. and it's deeply logically flawed and, and just utterly invalid because the, the notion of, of even individuality in a climate context d- ignores the whole philosophical thrust of climate thinking, which is that we are infinitely connected in uncountable, invisible ways. Yeah. In in an ecosystem that we can't observe the whole of. Yeah. And so even the notion of the individual is thrown into is thrown into a strange and dubious light by even the notion of climate change as a phenomenon.
1: And I think it's that this is getting a little bit heady, but like that notion of that, like flawed notion of individuality that goes counter to sort of like the climate thinking that we need to adopt, whereby we are all sort of like Part of that interconnected web in a in an infinite number of ways. It's it's that individualized thinking that sort of thinking that's based in like a sort of like modernist enlightenment realism, if you will, that keeps us from finding solutions and dreaming up solutions and and taking best practices from other places. It's like I think it was the other day I was looking on Twitter. And it was one of those things where it was like somebody. and 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 who knows how true this is. is it was a, it was a Twitter anecdote, but it was somebody was like, I'm in Iceland and I asked my bartender where all the homeless people are because I don't see any homeless people. And the bartender laughed and said, ha ha, we might have a couple panhandlers, but we don't have homelessness here. Our government would never let that happen. That's an American problem. And obviously it's not an American problem. There's homeless people all over the world, but, but there is this idea that an American might listen to that story or look at the case of Iceland where they don't have any homelessness and think, That's not possible for us. That's not realistic here for X number of reasons. And it's, it's that individuality. It's that I'm different than you. My, my circumstances are different than yours. And we, we have to keep our feet on the ground and our head out of the clouds in order to like survive that, that prevents us from the sort of like big dreaming and imaginative thinking that we need in order to like shift things the way they need to be shifted.
2: Yeah. And in the, those are the last things I agree on in time. In the interview I had uh, last week when I was talking to Alex Havasoli, I forget if this was in the conversation or not. No, it was in the conversation. We talked briefly about the fact that, you know, climate change at this point is not a problem of... It's not a technical... It's it's no longer a technical problem. It is a problem of will. If tomorrow the world governments came together and were like, okay, we're going to spend enough money to ensure that we don't have emissions in the next 10 years it would be a huge task we but it is possible we have the technology to actually make this possible we're just not we've just decided that our economic system has made it not possible and that is what you're talking about right that's the lack of expansive thinking that's the lack of belief that we've limited ourselves by our own economic system and then it's like well it's impossible and it's like if we just said no more emissions and ev- and just took that challenge on, it would take some time. It's, you can't flip a switch, but all of those pieces still do exist. Well, there's a slight, dis- there's a slight
0: discrepancy between her notion of individual responsibility and the individual responsibility that's like, you need to use a tote bag or go vegan or something. Right? She's talking about how she's expected to simply figure it out herself when something bad happens personally to her whereas climate change is something that's bad that's happening to the planet at large. I mean, you could individualize it mm-hmm. and say, "Oh, that climate refugee should just figure out their own life and I pay rent, so they should pay rent too." But the problem of climate change is different from the problem of uh, her finding a nanny or something.
2: Well, but no, but the point in even to find the nanny was that the problem that 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 she was facing was COVID and that with in that the even that was sort of tied up into this sort of, project.
1: or the fact that like financially so many people are completely cut off from being able to stay home with their children when they want to, or have family around who can take care of their kids or, or pay for childcare, if that's how you want to handle it. I yeah. think, I think maybe wrapping it up with, with the last paragraph of that piece is a good idea.
2: Great. All right. So here's the, this is the the sort of end it and we'll, we'll dive into this uh, conversation with Cassia. Um, The idea that we, so this is talking, this is uh, Amy Westervelt talking about her father. Uh, The idea that he should be able to solve everything on his own was so ingrained in him that he couldn't because none of us can. He thought it must be a personal failing. He never got to that moment of acceptance that I did with everything crashing in around me. He missed the pandemic altogether, but but an even deadlier and more implicable virus got him. One that America still hasn't begun to reckon with.
3: Welcome back, listeners, to the Green Majority Radio. And Amir here, again, coming to you from Brooklyn. And today I'm talking to a climate comrade, slash friend, slash, I am a fan of her work named Cassia Patel. And she's the program director of Oceanic Global. And the way I've come to relate to Oceanic Global and Cassia as a whole is just anytime. When I started my climate journey, it was all about plastic bags. And people just knew me as a plastic bag guy. And every time someone saw a meme about plastic bags, they would send it to me. I was just that person. And then, so Cassia is that person for me for anything that has to do with the ocean. I'm sure you're like that for <laughs> probably everyone in your in your friend group. I guess. Is that does that land at all for you?
4: Yeah, definitely. Happy, happy to take on that role. Uh, I'm also the one people talk about. Like they'll send photos of when they recycle or when they bring a reusable <laughs> exactly. anything, and yeah.
3: Exactly. And I, we were, you had just entered this conversation and Cassia was giving me a little of her background, getting a degree in biology and environmental engineering. Mm -hmm. Why don't we continue that train of thought and then let's, and then let's go from there.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So my background is more in the world of STEM sciences, academia. And when I was studying biology and environmental studies, I was really focusing a lot on the issues and the way that I was taught it was, there was a really heavy focus on doom and gloom, kind of we're maxing out all our resources, we're exploiting, there's irreversible damage. There was just such a negative tone to what I was learning and truthfully it, it was exhausting and continues to be. And so going into environmental engineering and I was mentioning how that's applied Sciences, real world application, it was a lot more collaborative and like, how do you work with a group of people to build something and to create solutions to problems that we're facing? Whether that's figuring out how to handle a public work system and offer clean drinking water and handle storm surge, which goes alongside managing resilient cities and planning for the future. And so there were a lot of really positive learnings throughout that process. And it was so refreshing to focus on what we can do and just to physically dive in there and start thinking through or building some of those solutions. So that was incredible. At the same time, it was still a bit theoretical. In the realm of academia, we're studying these things, putting together proposals for projects. But at that point, I was ready to break out of that realm of science and and actually start working with real people and policymakers and companies and communities. And that's where Oceanic Global really called to me. And so I was at school in uh, New York and Oceanic Global is headquartered in New York. I grew up in Hong Kong though. And so the founder of Oceanic Global also grew up in Hong Kong. We were connected through family, friends, just an interesting web of connections globally. But that's how I became aware of their work initially. And I just loved the approach on positivity optimism, Mm -hmm. it was so refreshing in this ocean of, of negative messaging around climate and the planet and the ocean and so it was really refreshing to see this youth-led millennial-led movement that was focused more on positivity using art using fashion using dance using um, immersive technology making it cool making it sexy making it fun but to take action and celebrating all of the little things that we do that can build up and, and that was a really um, oceanic global is a really strong focus on behavior change at all levels if you're an individual person for your family for your community If you're a business, if you're a restaurant, hotel, stadium, a music festival, like what can you do to drive positive change in this world? And so that really spoke to me through my journey. And uh, there is also a focus on supporting, supporting policy reform as well, which kind of feeds into all levels of behavior change by driving that forward, creating incentives, and all of the above.
3: For those that have not heard of Oceanic Global before, would you? It's a nonprofit organization that has a vast, humongous list of advisors, and and so how would you describe Oceanic Global? Someone who's never heard of it before.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So Oceanic Global is an ocean conservation nonprofit. Um, I mentioned that we really focus on behavior change, and our mission is to inspire and, and engage a new audience in ocean conservation too. So perhaps people who have maybe never thought about the ocean, never considered their connection or relationship to the ocean, which all of us on this planet are deeply connected to the ocean. Even if we live in a landlocked area, the ocean provides most of the oxygen that we breathe. The ocean's responsible for temperature regulation across the planet in more ways than then we, can, then we can really comprehend. We are so interconnected. So that's just one fundamental message that that we seek to share. Um, and then through that lens, driving forwards, behavior change. So how can we then defend and find harmony and balance with the ocean, with our life source and with this in, in general, with our blue planet? And so our work falls under two primary pillars. And one focused more at the community level, um, individual action, like I was mentioning. Within that falls in a lot of the educational and awareness work, hosting hosting awareness events. We're actually the nonprofit production partner to the United Nations World Oceans Day, which happens annually on June 8th. And so World Oceans Day is really starting to step into the spotlight, which is exciting to see alongside Earth Day and just as a day to celebrate our connection with the ocean, a day to learn about the issues um, facing our ocean and learning about how to, to take action. We also have a grassroots hubs program. So we have regional volunteer-based hubs in New York, LA, London, Barcelona. And that's starting to grow across the world where our volunteer chapters essentially have their own leadership structure. They self-organize and choose what they like to focus on. If it's youth education, community building, awareness efforts, cleanup efforts, policy reform. And we offer tools and training to support them with that work, but really letting them choose and lead um, some of those projects. And, and then on the, so that's our community pillar. The second pillar is working with industry. So working with businesses, Uh, I alluded to that briefly in in mentioning the restaurants, hotels, stadiums, and festivals all have the capacity and the opportunity to drive scalable behavior change. Uh, So we actually have a program that's called the Oceanic Standard, in which we create resources and step-by-step guides, essentially all open source, freely available on our website for different types of businesses to start taking action. And with everything, we do focus on tackling a single-use plastic and waste as a gateway to then start thinking about responsible food, responsible seafood, non-toxic products, reducing emissions, energy, water consumption, and beyond. But really starting with plastic and waste as something that is really visible, tangible, and that's easier to relate to in some ways because it is it's so physical and uh, we know a lot of the solutions on hand to to tackle and eliminate that from our lives. Yeah. So with businesses, we have these guides. We also have a consulting Service or support. So we we will hold businesses' hand through that process and connect them with alternatives, connect them with solutions for whatever it is they're facing. We do focus a lot on hospitality and tourism. So looking at things like straws, cups, bottles, takeaway containers, shampoo and shower amenities, things like that. And then and then we do have a badge verification system so we can ultimately evaluate and then recognize businesses for what they've achieved. And we've got a three-tiered badge system. We're actually in the process of rebranding. So we'll be launching the new version in September. And for that, we're we're shifting to a three-starred system. And and yeah, so we offer the support to help businesses get there. And then we can offer them, can award them with the stars to celebrate that and communicate that internally, externally. We've seen it's a really good motivator for teams. They want to get the plastic-free recognition, which Mm -hmm. is our highest level. It'll be the three stars. Um, And so that kind of sparks the team to to take more action. They're more willing to go the extra mile to change their supply chain, to think more creatively around, yeah, what needs to shift within their operations and trainings to to make this all reality. And then on the other side of that, the marketing teams often of businesses are are approaching us because they want this recognition. They see the value in it. Yeah. So I think that goes alongside with communication around these initiatives, which, which is just as important as taking these actions because That's what can then inspire other businesses to follow suit. In addition, it's not just like changing what the business themselves is doing. And we see the power and the behavior change uh, also to influence and inspire everybody who walks through that space. So everybody who goes to that restaurant or everybody who goes to a game at that stadium can then see what that space is doing or what their heroes, their favorite musicians or athletes, or if it's lifestyle, favorite hotels and restaurants, what they're doing and see how they can emulate that in their own lives when they go home.
3: If, if we're talking about the core mission is to inspire activism and conservation of the ocean, that's that core seed. Yeah. And then from there, you have the spectrum of work, which goes from the grassroots, bottom up community space and about awareness events and then activating volunteers around the world. And then you have this top down mm-hmm. industry approach where you work with organizations, mostly in the hospitality industry and providing consultations and stadiums and events and things like that to reduce their impact on the oceans and conserve whenever they can. It's like this full spectrum thing. Is that what I, I think I got all that right?
4: That was a great summary. Yeah.
3: <laughs> okay. Absolutely. So I'm curious about so I, I guess this is Googleable, but how long has Oceanic been around?
4: So we formally um, five years old, uh, we incorporated in 2016 as a nonprofit.
3: That's remarkable. Five years and all like how, what is, so for our listeners, if you just Google oceanic.global, you'll just see this really beautiful website with all these <laughs> crazy, awesome celebrities and surfers and, and climate activists that all just are organized around this common idea. And that's really that's the the powerful thing when you can articulate a concept, you can articulate an idea and a mission statement and and brand it in a way that reflects people's aspirations. They just gravitate to it. What else? How? What else do you would you say contributes to this accelerated uh, growth? And then, yeah, what is what is that? How does what was that path like? That process like.
4: Yeah, it definitely, it's definitely been a wild ride. (laughs) And I'm sure also for those who've really been part of it since the very, very beginning. At that point with the event that I mentioned, initially the idea was just to host a single event, but then in the process that the team went through to, to put the event together and to engage a lot of the businesses on the island and to start essentially encouraging a lot of the businesses to start taking further action and with all the immense support and excitement to get involved, at that point it became clear um, for Leia, the founder, that that there was a need for a nonprofit or organization to really house all of this work and that there were many opportunities for the programs to grow and to develop and to serve the current needs of the movement and of the space. I think the reason it's been so successful and what's quite unique, I would say, about Oceanic Global as a nonprofit is that the founding team, are their backgrounds really are diverse and vary um, and none of them are in marine biology or ocean conservation or science specifically. They are coming from the events production world, from communications, from marketing, from the music industry, from a wide variety of things. And of course, as you mentioned, there's a really strong scientific advisory board offering mm-hmm. guidance. But I think that the strength of the community and how it's grown is just in the ability to partner and to, to grow together, to bring in experts as needed on her guidance and advice in different capacities, but then also to partner with other organizations doing incredible work to uplift their work in areas where we can complement each other too. And so I think that general philosophy and approach just for collective action and to truly lift all boats in this movement is why it has been so successful because we can all lift each other up. And that's Mm -hmm. why there have been so many opportunities. And uh, truthfully, at the beginning, We, we were very reactive to just what was coming in the door. There were so many projects and so many ideas that people had that we were really, you know, very excited to just support and be a part of and get off the ground. And and now we're at a stage where we can think more strategically around how to best direct energy and effort for our, our own internal programs as well as supporting those of others. But I do think that's why we've been able to grow so quickly is because it's, yeah, it's all about just that collective growth. And I do see this a lot in a shift in newer nonprofits, especially younger nonprofits in the ocean space and in the, in the in the zero waste space for lack of a better term as well in comparison to older nonprofits is that focus on collective action and partnerships and support and building more of this network and web of community. And I have to say a lot of these organizations tend to be run by women as well. And it's really exciting to see women step into this role as we are natural nurturers, community Mm -hmm. builders. And yeah, so it comes a little bit more naturally instead of taking a competitive approach there.
3: I love that. I'm so glad you said that. When I hear the future is female, in my mind, it's those words that you just said. (laughs) It's the being before doing. Mm. It's the collective. It's the together. It's the abundance mindset.
4: Mm, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the abundance mindset. I think that's still something that personally that I'm I'm still learning and, and growing through because I think there's a natural tendency within the nonprofit space or perhaps in, in conservation or just movements, social and environmental movements more broadly, to come from a mindset of lack, to come from a mindset that there are limited resources, there are limited, there's limited funding, there's limited attention there's limited space for lack of a a better term too just like in in the movement for us to get our message out there and that we're competing with other messages and i think Mm -hmm. um to your point we're learning that's really not true if we come from a place of of abundance and recognition that we can shift whether it's capital funding attention into this movement in different ways and that we're actually not competing against each other, and that there could be infinite of those resources, unlike natural resources, then we can, yeah, just to, I think that's where movements can become more intersectional and supportive as well.
3: How, so is this, It's what it sounds like to me is that all of these things that you're saying, you're talking about are essentially have been a part of who you've been, who you are as a person. And then now that you're aligning that with your work, it sounds like it's just this container, these conditions for you to just grow into it even more. And I'm wondering if you've, ex- what kind of shifts have you experienced in yourself or in shifts in how you relate to the ocean as you get deeper into this? It's an open-ended question. Take it wherever you like.
4: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, definitely. It does feel, it feels incredible to be able to align passion with purpose with career. And I know that that is rare and I definitely feel really grateful and fortunate to have that opportunity. It also, it, going back kind of to that abundance mindset, it also really makes me want to create more of these opportunities for people around the world. It, like it, it should be easier for people to, to step into an impactful role. I feel like the default and the way that the world works actually ideally it would be the most beneficial if job opportunities like these where you can create tangible impact were the easiest to find and the easiest to have access to and had the most financial support and had the most had direct recruitment channels as well versus I think, yeah, truth, sadly, a lot of people are in in job opportunities where, you know, they don't believe in the mission, or they don't even really understand or care about the purpose of the company. And we're just producing for the sake of producing. And that's has a negative impacts on morale on availability for Yeah, just like emotional availability. And uh, ability to offer and, and to give to a lot of these causes where we need as many people to be engaged. So I think I'm excited to see how we can be growing these opportunities. And as we work with industry and businesses in shifting what they're doing, it, what's been really exciting is recognizing too that businesses, even the massive ones are just made out of people. They're just composed of people who care about things. And if we can engage those people to care about the same things that we care about, then we can really start to create that ripple effect and to create that movement. And chances are there's people in all the companies that, that we can think about who already do have some of these values. And so we can tap into their awareness because from our experience in working with the business, if you have a few um, internal heroes or champions for yes. sustainability initiatives yes. or practices, then mm-hmm. it you know it just grows a life of its own. And that, and that's mm-hmm. also what's necessary for there to be successful initiatives. It can't just come from the CEO level. There have to be those champions almost at every tier of management and all the way down. That's why we focus so much on training everybody from dishwashers to bartenders to um, hosts at restaurants and, and just getting the whole team excited and rallied around why we're doing this and, and mm-hmm. what it means to, to, do, to do this. So I know that was not exactly the question that you asked but i think in response i think i've been growing a lot personally through the development of oceanic global of the oceanic standard of like our, of our programs and how we've been learning more about the movement and have been responsive to changing conditions globally what that could be something like as specific as better understanding um, and cutting through new forms of greenwashing, whether it's looking at bioplastics or learning about new harmful chemicals that are uh, commonly found in food service items. That, so, we need to shift our recommendations, or if mm. it's also just learning how to create more inclusive movements and how to create more intersectionality between environmental justice campaigns and the campaigns that have been traditionally run. So, I think through a lot of this, there's been growth both at a, at a professional level, at a, as a nonprofit and a program, as well as at a personal Yeah. And I think that's also where the collective action can be really supportive. If we're all here to support each other and teach each other and learn from each other, then we'll have a lot more, many more legs and shoulders to stand on than if we were doing it competitively or on our own.
3: Mm -hmm. I love what you just said about organizations are nothing but people. Yeah, And we're just, it's just groups of people that have agreed to be in a certain place and work on a certain thing. And within those, as Elon Musk calls it, interconnected cybernetic networks of people, it's like in a cartoon where it's just a person's little question mark over their head or like a little exclamation point over their head. And slowly someone turns in one particular direction and another person turns in, another, in, in that same direction. And then before long, enough people might look in that direction. And if within an organization that can happen, it's such an organic, natural way for this, these cultures to emerge. And I'm wondering If you can almost guide us a little bit to the process of how your work works, or maybe if you have a particular, oh, we worked with this organization and they came to us wanting this, and then we ended up doing that. And like, I wonder if you can guide us through that a little bit.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the Oceanic Standard I mentioned has these open source resources as well as the consulting support and then ultimately the recognition or, or the badge system. The way that works more from an operational perspective is when, when a business approaches us and they're interested in get, become implementing the standard, joining the program, we first conduct an assessment. And so we essentially audit their full supply chain, everything it is that they're sourcing. We're looking at. To better understand their plastic footprint, uh, as well as their waste management practices and what all of that looks like. So we do get pretty detailed information around what are they ordering, uh, which items are single use plastics, uh, looking at annual quantities, even and prices and suppliers and all the information that we'll need to help them find alternatives and to replace those and to also create a little bit of a cost benefit analysis so we can demonstrate cost savings that they'll achieve by moving away from single use plastic and improving the waste management by diverting waste away from paying for landfill fees. So yeah, so that's the operational process. And that's the part that takes the longest, I would say, is getting that data. And then once we have it, making the recommendation, testing out solutions, and to your point, seeing what works well, and it may not be the first idea. there may be a few iterations or a few trials until we find something that that suits the the needs of that business. It definitely is a case-by-case, no one-size-fits-all type of process. There's a couple of examples I can share. One I think that you'll appreciate, which is the House of Yes in New York. And they came to us towards the beginning of when we launched the program actually to help them go plastic free with their headquarters location in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I definitely took some iteration. They were really dedicated. It was amazing. We got to work with their full team. We hosted some trainings, educational workshops for their full community as well to really share why this was important and they opened that up to the broader community to participate. And we actually through that, started to put together Earth Love Fest events where it was a, a big celebration. Again, just very positive and uplifting surrounding Earth Day with workshops alongside musical performances. And so ultimately where we've gotten them and also where, where they've gotten to is using reusable cups in their venue. And so they have reusable cups, but they do have water on site They and they're selling for for water that they need to sell. They're using aluminum canned water. They've They're recycling everything back of house. So they've removed the bins that had previously been just on the floor where if people are up late partying, they're less likely to separate their waste. So that's all done by their team. So they can really keep a handle on that and make sure things are getting properly sorted. They've been using paper straws where needed, but only upon request, which really reduces the amount of material that they go through. And then when we host the events where there are food trucks and and food and beverage vendors outside of their control, we, we have guidelines for what those vendors can bring to the space. And it's really clear this is a plastic-free policy and here are some solutions and recommendations you can be using. And for the larger events, we partnered with Cup Zero, who have an awesome, reasonable cup solution that they can offer. And so actually for their Halloween event, where I believe it's, typically 20,000 people capacity in, in, a different, in a different space other than their HQ location. We are able to use Cup Zero and they made money on the cups in the way that the deposit system works. They're actually Amazing. net positive in finding a reusable solution. So that's why we love reusables because from a cost savings perspective, they make so much sense. It's the best option from a waste perspective. And yeah, it's just wonderful when those things go hand in hand. So that's one example. Another example, which a, a bit larger, we're working with Corona USA. And so that was recently announced surrounding World Oceans Day this year, actually, and so we're partnering with them on a five-year campaign to, from a community side to host 100 beach cleanups, community-level cleanups, where people can come out, participate, and focus on their own local community. But then we're also working at the internal level with all the different teams, merchandise, marketing, point of sale. We're learning a lot about how those companies work, which has been exciting, to help them eliminate a million pounds of plastic from their operations okay. uh, by 2025. Yeah, so you we've go. been really getting into the details of all the little giveaway items, all the merchandise items, everything that's used, looking at the packaging uh, of the product, which has minimal plastic, but reducing where it, where it appears. And, and so that's definitely been a much larger undertaking. And a lot of that kind of continuing some of the threads we've been talking about here have to do with education and awareness. And what's amazing is everyone is so excited about this and they can't wait to, to do more. And they keep coming up with more questions and what if we tried this and can we do this and all mm-hmm. the different, all of their own field and sales agents and teams want to host their own cleanups too. Yeah. So it's just been, it's been a really great experience.
3: So it could be one thing if you're just like, okay, here's a poster of like for your house of yes, for example, you get rid of your single use cups, no more straws, sort everything from the back. Like that could have been sent as an email. Okay, that's that's just there. But it's one thing if you just do that. It's another thing if you actually go into the organization, hear people, have these conversations, create Mm -hmm. the dialogue, create the new connections, inspire, connect, storytell, engage, laugh, cry, like all of this stuff that is required for a person to just churn on the inside. It's almost like this, you're taking these organizations through a car wash almost. You're like, all right, cool. Let's like, yeah. let's get in, let's get under the hood. Let's talk about this stuff. And then let's identify you are this credible body that is identifying the solutions that is cool. If you guys do this and this solid, and also you get a star or two stars or whatever. Like, so right. you're like this uplifting ocean conservation car wash for <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: people and, and organizations of sorts. Yeah. Is this, yeah. That's what I'm hearing.
4: I like the car wash analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, to your point, and we, and the, I guess the email version of that is, is just our guides, which are on the website. Exactly and, you know, right. they, do, they do go step-by-step. Step. I have to say in, from my experience, there's only one group that's ever just done that independently. Um, when they were a school, they had a university, mm-hmm. they had a little bit more intention and, and passion around it. Uh, yeah. But that said, I think it's, it, a lot of the groups that we're targeting: hospitality, tourism, events, music. We also work with office spaces where there are dedicated teams, so it could be a little different in that scenario. But, but in a lot of other of these other sectors, people are just so busy trying to right, meet the right. baseline requirements, especially after this past year or two. So it's just if you make something really easy, our whole mission with the program is make it easy, make it cost effective, get rid of any barriers, any limitations, any excuses for not mm-hmm. taking action and not doing this and to push them that direction. At the same time, if there are go-getters, if there are people that groups that are already doing it, that's great. We can recognize them. We'll still just need to do a verification of evaluate with what it is they're doing. But yeah, exactly. I think we've seen that we it, it's necessary to go beyond just having the guides.
3: Yeah. And then, so does that cost an organization anything? How does that work?
4: Yeah, great question. As we started the program, so we, we launched that program in April, 2018, which is really right before I, I had jumped on. And at the beginning, it was completely pro bono. And that said, as we've been growing the program to be financially sustainable as well, we're rebranding, I should mention, I think I did mention, we launching that in September. And so that'll have a good new website, a new registration platform. So we are introducing more, more consistent registration fees and consulting fees. That said, they will be, so those will all be tax exempt donations to Oceanic Global. But that said... There will, there's always going to be a sliding scale and we'll have, we'll still be doing pro bono projects, particularly in coastal communities. And we're actually running a lot of projects at the island-wide level with different communities in in Barbados, Aeolian Islands, in the Bahamas, and uh, and elsewhere in in Mexico. And a lot of those programs have local funding where we're able to then hire consultants that are on the ground. Um, a, A massive part of the program is actually training consultants. And so these consultants are ones who can work with the business, conduct the assessment, offer the recommendations, um, and then basically package all of that and send that a project report or documentation to us. And so we can give our stamp of approval and award the badge. Mm. Yeah. And so the idea is really giving people tools to be leaders in their own community and bring this to businesses where where they are in their own language. And, And so we and we have translated a series of the guides, but having that in-person dialogue, of course, is so valuable. So yeah, so I guess long story short, yes, there are some set fees. That said, it's pretty flexible based on whatever business can do. We want to work with everyone. We do have a, a sliding scale there. Yeah, I
3: love it. Okay, great. So then if an individual is listening right now, an individual can go on and uh, most of our listeners are in, in Toronto and across Canada, they'll be looking at, I'm sure, some uh, volunteer hubs in Canada that you're aware of?
4: We do not yet have a hub in Canada. We've been working with a lot more partners and organizations and businesses in Toronto, though, I will say. We've also had different team members at different times based in Toronto. So yeah, so definitely a growing community there, although not officially uh, a hub. We, we only do have four official hubs, but that said, there's a lot of ways to still get involved and support. And if anyone's interested in becoming a consultant, that's definitely something that, um, mm-hmm. that we can loop, loop anyone into. Or if you're just interested in, spreading awareness and letting businesses know that these types of resources and support exist. Again, like the resources are freely available just on the website too. But that's another way to be like an ambassador in your own community for, for the change.
3: And if you're listening and you're saying to yourself, you know what, I also run a nightclub or I want to run a restaurant or you know what, my uncle runs this hotel and we're in Vancouver and you know what, they just watched Seaspiracy and now is my opportunity to get in there and just say, listen, now's the time where we're getting rid of all of those little tiny shampoo bottles that you're giving out to every single room. Guests come and take 10 extra ones and they never end up using it. Uncle, we're cutting it. We're getting a hold of Oceanic Global. Here's the deal. So if a person's sitting there listening to us yeah. right now, that's another way they could get involved, can get in touch and on an organizational level as well.
4: Absolutely. That'd be amazing. Yes, definitely. Yeah. and our, So our website is oceanic.global. And if you go to the solutions tab at the top, you'll see all, all about our, our solutions program. You'll see all the guides and resources there. There's actually a form directly there where you can reach out. Depending on if you're a business, a consultant, if you're a solution provider, and you want to be to be added into our network of solutions that we recommend, also we'd love to hear from you and get you in the loop there too.
3: Yes. Yeah. So, how would a person, if say our listener is the person who has an uncle with, that owns a hotel, how did they get you guys to run their hotel through a car wash?
4: Yeah, yeah. So on on that solutions page. So yeah, so it's oceanic.global solutions page. At the bottom, there's a button called verify your business. Uh Uh, If you click on that, I'll just take you to an email address. And so you can shoot us a quick note and and we'll get back to you pretty quickly. We as a part of the rebrand that I was mentioning, we will have a new website up for the program shortly and that will have its own embedded like registration platform mm. for, for projects to like directly just give us some basic info which will uh, catalyze the process but for now that email address is perfect
3: okay great and for yeah for anyone listening also mention that you heard us on the green majority radio and that will be a jubilant experience to hear about for me and the rest of the green majority team as well as Cassia. That is great. I have learned a lot. This is so cool. I would like to bring us back home with, you've been in this world for a long time. Like clearly this has been a very important thing to you and your heart for many years. And now you are steeped into it. You're a program director for this awesome organization. Is there something that you wish more people knew about
4: One thing that I wish more people knew, I know this may sound a little repetitive, but just one thing I wish more people knew is that everyone is welcome in this movement, that you don't need to have a a relevant degree to get started and to be a part of this. And if you are waiting for an invitation, consider this your invitation. You're very welcome. And we'd love to see you join us and and become a part of this in whatever capacity that looks like. If that's supporting Oceana Global's work, if that's just starting to read, watch, learn, participate in more discussions. Like the incredible events and discussions that uh, Amer is leading and others around the world, then then please just start with that and start by doing that. But then I think really just to recognize the, the power and capacity that we all have to create change if it's getting rid of plastic in your day-to-day life if it's eating less seafood eating more responsible seafood if it is changing the way that you travel around the world if it's offsetting with mangroves and blue carbon a random one that came up actually at a house of Yes event too is especially if you're in new york city or other areas where we have combined sewage overflow systems so the water down our drains is combined with stormwater And if that overflows, that goes right into the river and causes a whole heap of different problems. So don't shower when it's raining is a random but specific tip. And and if you don't know what your city is doing, then just, you know, don't shower when it rains. So one thing I was just chatting about with Amer before we jumped on for the interview today is that the... Little city of Santa Rosa in California has, as of last night, unanimously passed a zero waste food ordinance, which Mm. means that all restaurants, including fast food restaurants, have to use reusable food service ware for dine-in. So that just means for for a dine-in, there, there will never there will not be styrofoam, plastic wrappers, lids, straws, etc. When you're actually eating in the restaurant, and there will be support for for dishwashing and all of that as that transitions. But this is this seems pretty straightforward, but it's pretty revolutionary when we think about how accepted a single-use mentality, even when we're sitting in a place. And so it is actually a pretty big shift, and it's gonna is gonna. Force a lot of those massive chains to reconcile with with focusing on more local scale solutions. So. Really exciting work there just to share that note of optimism um, and a a reminder to just check out what local policy is in the works in your area, even just in your city um, or in your state or at the federal level and how you can reach out to your representatives and support that if you're in the U.S., if you're in Canada as well, just seeing what's available in your region. But um, yeah, there are so many things we can do. I know that was a long list. Thank you so much for having me on here and for everyone who's been listening in this long. And um, yeah, I hope you stay in touch.
3: Nailed it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you again, listeners, for being here with us again today. I'm gonna to-